You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Hello, Michael. Andre, welcome back. Thank you. I'm exhausted. You know, I was thinking about it, and when I was in Italy, you called me a pussy because I didn't stay up late. And yet, when I said, kept texting you and saying, when are we going to do this? You're like, I'm going to bed. I'm too tired. Yeah, so, it was after midnight all of those nights. Correct. But I talked to you at 3 in the morning at one point. Did I talk to you at 3 in the morning? I talked to you at 3 in the morning when I was in Italy once. It was oh, yeah, 3 in the morning true. my time. That's true. Okay. Because that was the only time that you could talk okay. to me. Okay, my hat's off to you, but in all fairness, your trips to Italy are usually one or two days longer than the trip I had. Oh, it was a very short trip. Still a pussy, my friend. <laughs> Big, fat, hairy pussy. I'm Andre Prue from AndreWineReview.ca. I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWineReview.com. So we were supposed to speak to Andre uh, because he went to uh, Francia Corta. And uh, as you found out in that little exchange... He wimped out on me at least twice. Yeah, we tried really hard to do live to tape, but you were also busy on the Saturday. I was busy was on the Saturday, day. which was fine. It was the day that we had to line up to speak, but... No, no, we had writing up the, the, the Friday. But you were too tired. Too tired. So tell me about Franciacorda. I've tasted the wines, and uh, I, I thought they were pretty exciting, but now you've been. So you have, obviously, more information to give. You know, I was really excited to, to go in the first place having researched the area that it, uh, it's an area that specializes in champagne style sparkling, including uh, varietals. So it's a lot of Chardonnay, it's a lot of Pinot Noir, they also use uh, Pinot Blanc. And if you're Italian or from Franciacorta, I realize that you call them Pinot Bianco and Pinot Nero. Pinot Nero. 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 Nero while you're there but it's the same the same varietal as you find in france and also in ontario but i mean the quick overview uh and, and one thing as as canadians and as fans of ontario we should really be excited about this region and hopefully we see some come to the market and i'll talk a little bit more about some of the wineries that we went to but there's so many things about this region that just parallels what's happening in niagara right now while this reason region has hung its hat on sparkling and there's a crap ton of sparkling going on there, and it's awesome. Uh, they do make some red wine, and it's a lot of fun because they have uh, Bordeaux, Bordeaux varietals. They have Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and the couple examples that I did get to taste were very good. I mean, it wasn't um, like earth-shattering Grand Cru Bordeaux, let's age these for 20 years sort of stuff, but once again, like very similar to Niagara working with the terroir and working with vintage conditions. You have these beautiful bottles of red wine uh, with nice acidity, good balance, a lot of fruit, and certainly the ability to age for maybe five to ten years. So that people know, so obviously everybody knows that Italy is shaped like a boot. Where are you in the boot and what's the province you're in? Where is Franciacorta? It is in Lombardy. Okay. And it is up near the top of the boot, right in the middle. Got it. So top, middle of the boot. Yeah. The um, and what what makes it any different from say uh, Prosecco? Like why why do I have to go all the way to Lombardy to get sparkling wine when I can just as easily go down to the the Prosecco region and and get sparkling wine there? Well, we're talking traditional method. Oh. So uh, in the bottle, uh, secondary fermentation, disgorgement, all these 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 great things being done that's being done in the Champagne region, and also. As I said, in, in Niagara, like it's a young region, a lot of the bottles that I saw were uh, three years on Lees. Um, a lot of the younger ones included a little bit more Pinot Blanc in, in the uh, assemblage. And 
Um, I think the most remarkable thing, if I had to make an overarching um, observation about the region, is while Champagne and even a lot of Niagara wines skew really heavily towards citrus and like really, really high acidity, these wines, they do hold on to their acidity, but the, the, the fruit definitely ripens a little bit more than what we find here because the flavor profile skewed more towards orchard fruit. A lot of apple going to the golden delicious Macintosh, some bruised or baked apple in some of them, uh, peaches, pears, and a nice spicy note to it. But like really holding on to the really holding on to the acidity. That was what the the amazing thing was about these is to get these like really ripe flavors, like flavors you associate with a little bit of a warmer region or you know still very much cool climate but a little bit more depth in the fruit than just a lot of citrus so when you say that it's a young region like how long have they been making sparkling wine there who uh i'd have to go back to the book to get the exact year but it was made a doc with 13 original producers i think about 60 70 years ago Oh, so it's not that old. It's not that young a region. When you, I wouldn't you said it was fairly okay, but young. when you're talking about Italy in the grand scheme of things, no, but I mean, about 60, 70 France years. in the grand scheme of things, in, in terms of, of the Grand Cru classification, things like that, this is still a pretty young region. Have they always made sparkling, or is this like 60, 70 years ago, somebody just started making sparkling, and then they went, well, shit, this stuff's really doing really good? Hmm. I, you know what? I would once again need to go back and check my notes, because I didn't get down right down to the... The original history, but they have been making wine in the region for a, a very yeah. long time. I, I, I was actually invited uh, to the region. Uh, the trip was hosted by uh, Richie Curbastro. Mm-hmm. And on the property, there is a museum dedicated to um, agriculture and, and viticulture. So they have all sorts of winemaking tools from the past 100, 150 years, right down to different bottles. And it's really crazy when you see bottles lined up going from like 450 milliliters up to approximately 750 milliliters and i know like looking at an empty wine bottle doesn't sound exciting but it's more just interesting to see the evolution and also see bottles that maybe aren't quite you know when you go to the lcbo every bottle is you know perfectly straight and all neatly organized in a straight line and these is a little bit of an artisanal feel to them so I remember uh, Richie Curbastro came to uh, Ontario at some point, and uh, the, the presenter was talking about their sparkling wine in the region, and they said there is uh, a little bit of a battle, I guess is the word, uh, between uh, Champagne and Lombardi about who really invented sparkling wine. Did they bring that up at all, or was there? No, they didn't bring that up. They really didn't bring that up at all. I know that there wasn't a, a there, were, there wasn't a lot of I mean, the fact that the DOCG was was founded fairly recently, the French are going to have history on their side. I mean, things are, are much more more documented. Like it's taken a while for French Accord to compared to Champagne to kind of get their their shit together and organize to form this organization. I mean, when the DOCG was founded, there were only thirteen wineries included in in that original founding. I think there, uh, whew. I don't want to throw a number out there, but there's significantly more than that. I think it may even be up to 300, but there isn't a lot of space in, in the region. It's a very, very small region. So let's uh, let's get off of, of any of the history or anything. So where did you... I paid more attention to the wine. Obviously, that's how it went. So tell me, the uh, you've got three here in, in yeah. front of us. Yeah, I mean, um, there should be no, no surprise surprise to anyone... But all all biases uh, aside, like the wines that did have the Pinot Blanc in in the the uh, the assemblage 
were very nice, very good. They're affable, they're easy drinking. And if I had a choice to run to the LCBO right now and, and see that there is a Brute, and there's one from uh, Berlucci that's going to be coming out in a, a few weeks. Actually, we're recording this at the end of September, so it may even be out by the time you're hearing this oh, podcast. Yeah. Either way, keep, keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open for it because it's something worth checking out. Not something you want to necessarily age. Just toss it back and enjoy it. Enjoy it chilled. Enjoy it the way you would uh, champagne. But it's 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 Italy. But a specific style called uh, satin is made. It's a blanc de blanc, and that was what I really fell in love with. So Chardonnay. Yes. Okay. Um, most of the satin that I, I tasted, it was a lot of barrel fermented and then put into the bottle for secondary fermentation. A little bit longer on, on lees, but like just this kind of depth, the more bready, toasty notes. Uh, you know, the floral note was pulled right back. So floral notes coming from the, the Pinot Blanc. Just like a, a little bit more austere than a lot of the brute that I that I tasted. So I just learned something because, the, you, as you said, satin is a... Uh is a style of wine in the region. I thought it was just the name of something at Ricci Curbastro, but no. obviously it's it's a a, um, uh, a name or the the style of wine, which would be Blanc de Blanc. So interesting. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's uh, if you ever see Satin on the on the shelf, like by all means, like I would buy that without hesitation. Um, I picked up a bottle because I wanted something to drink in in the hotel room while I was there, and I figured went in Lombardy, drink Franciacorta. And uh, they, there were a few that I had that were zero dosage, so we're talking bone, bone dry. Uh, and I picked up a, a Blanc de Blanc that was, was the first day I was there before I'd even had a chance to taste any wines. And I didn't get to taste it until the second day. And it was like 20 euros for the bottle. And all, all of these wines in Italy run for 15 to 25 euros. So not, you know, not the cheapest. You're not going to hear, because everyone's got the stories of going to Italy or France. You're just like, oh my God, these wines were only 5 euros a bottle. You're not going to find that in, in Franciacorta. But... Compared to champagne, you're getting a really good deal on, on, on these wines. So you you have, as I said, you have these uh, three bottles in yes. front of you. So you talked about the... Uh, Berlucci. The Berlucci. So what's the other one there uh, on your the, left? The Baron uh, Pizzini. This was another satin. Also just really solid winemaking. Really nice depth to it. Uh, this one's vintage from 2011. So it was about five years on lees before disgorgement and, 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 and put together. The bottle and the bottle on the Baron is just really nice with a really narrow neck. It's got a nice... Uh, I mean, these wines all look like, like premium wines. They've done a really good job with the packaging and the, and the labeling. Uh, and when I visited Richie Curbastro, I, this was at the point where I'd already fallen in love with Chardonnay. I want everyone knows that. Uh, but the bottle in front of you is for Rosé. It's a Rosé Brut. So is it is it a Pinot Noir? Yes. Do they do they have a name since Satan is is Blanc de Blanc? Do they have a name for uh, Blanc, Blanc de, de Noir? Noir? Uh, I I don't recall seeing many Blanc de Noirs, so I would have to check my notes. It certainly, if if we did taste any, I'll be honest, it certainly wasn't the wines that excited me and. My notebook isn't in front of me because that's just not how we usually do the podcast. No, that's not how we do it. <laughs> so, but would you would say that it was mostly a Chardonnay region when it came to their sparkling Very wines? much. There was a large percentage of Chardonnay planted in the region. It's clear that it does really well. And when we were at Berlucci, I asked um, one of the part owners who was pouring wines for us if they had any any table wine, any still Chardonnay. You'll put up a bottle and it's not one that makes it out of the winery very often. Uh but it's just these these the, these winemakers have figured out just how to how to treat the fruit and how to deal with their grapes 
um, without really like like they're doing it right, like right right from the get go. Like there's so many there's so many things they could be doing, and it's exciting that they've got the sparkling wines. But the Chardonnay that he poured for us, it wasn't over oak; it was lightly oak. It held, held on to this great acidity. The the, the flavor, it, it was a sort, short, sort of Chardonnay where I would tease you for liking, but come on, you and I would both know that. Like, this is just like, wow, they know exactly what they're doing, really well put together. And once again, like, I know you can't you can't speak to it because you haven't tasted it, but I've got a pretty wide range of what I like for Chardonnay, but this is one that falls right in the middle of that sweet spot of having nice exposure to, to barrel, you know, nice balance with acidity, good fruit, fully ripe, you know, leaning from from citrus to orchard fruit all in one glass. It was just really well put together wine. So, and, and I know you love asking uh, winemakers this question. How many times did you ask them about uh, climate change and uh, what did you find out? Uh, I didn't ask a single a single question about I'm climate change. shocked. Uh, but I mean, it, it's a thing about... Uh, about did you ask them if they had a drought? I did not ask them about a drought. Uh, although it's really funny because they were all really upfront about it because the they were right in the middle of harvest while it was there. So it was really exciting to be there. Uh, but they all had uh, their head hung in shame um, on April 19th. And I remember this because it is Anya, my lovely fiance's birthday. Uh, French Corta was hit with a really bad frost and it took out 50% of the flowers. So oh. they had a short harvest this year. So it'll be more expensive is basically what you're saying. Quality of fruit was very high. Yeah. Um, but just a, a short, a short crop, and I don't know if, they, if they're going to be able to to raise the prices. I mean, it's it's a bit of a stretch. You're in Italy. You're selling sparkling wine, so you're immediately competing with with prosecco, to in you know a, a more pedestrian to a less educated wine drinker. And if you're shooting for an educated or more affluent um, affluent wine consumer, you're immediately competing with with champagne. So at least in Italy you've got an upper leg that your bottles are, are going to be generally cheaper than champagne, but even at 18 and 25 euros, you could still get into some entry-level champagne at those prices there. I mean, it's, it's going to be an interesting challenge to see when these bottles make it to North America because um, I hope at some point in the next year or two, uh, I'd love to set up a tasting with some bottles of Franciacorta next to some bottles from Niagara, non-competitive. Non but I mean, it, it would just be really interesting to see how you can have kind of similar regions dealing with similar varietals and similar philosophies to see how the wines turn out so differently. So it was your first time in Italy. Yes. When did it actually hit you that you were in Italy? Um, I got back on Sunday, so Sunday. So on your way back, you went, oh, geez, I've just come back from Italy? You know what? There was um, never a point where you were there where you were looking out over a vineyard or something like that, and you said, holy shit, this is Italy. I... I I think the first moment when I when I got there, they took us right off the plane, right to the hotel, and then right to a winery. Like it was a really packed trip, but we were able to have lunch at the hotel before leaving, and I had just a really beautiful risotto. And there were just kind of little moments, and it's just the hospitality. Like it's it's the thing about when you when you travel to to Europe, once you can get out of the metropolitan places, it's just that whole feeling of being in a small town when you're actually in a small town. It's almost like it's a universal. You know, a universal level of, of friendliness. Um, 
you know, we had me and, and uh, Janine Singh, which is one of the other journalists that were on the trip, we sat in the hotel on the last night and we shared a couple bottles of the, of the red wine in the hotel bar over a long period of time. We weren't drinking heavily, just for those and listening. Not, and you're not driving. Um, but one of the owners or the, the managers of the hotel came out, saw that we didn't have any food in front of us, and it was just like, I, I have food, you need food, no, no charge. And he shows up at the table, and we, we purposely didn't order food because we were so full because we spent the entire day eating various little b- bits and bites at all the wineries because all the tastings we did had... Uh, all, all the different tastings that we did had different sorts of charcuterie and, and cheeses. Bits and bobs. Is the and thing. I think it, it builds up when you're doing like three winery stops in a day. So we made our last stop, and uh, yeah, he brings out this platter with barbecued rabbit and barbecued pork on it. So we forced ourselves to, to eat it, but I mean, it was just like, it was a really genuine moment. Like, he didn't have to do that for us. Or even our driver. Our driver was, like, it was obviously work for him, but he seemed to genuinely enjoy himself and enjoyed talking to us. And uh, on our way to the airport, this was kind of one of the last things, because the whole thing was so whirlwind. I was only there for, like, two and a half, three days. On the way back to the airport to take us back to Canada, we stopped at a gas station because uh, one of the other women I was traveling with um, wanted to get a real coffee at the gas station on, on the way. Or we wanted a good coffee, and the, the driver was like, you can get a good coffee here. And it was at a gas station. And they had cheeses at the gas station, so I bought a brick of Parmesan Reggiano for 9 euros. And I was just like, okay, if it's crappy gas station cheese, I only spent like 15 bucks on it. It's a pound and a half of cheese, you know. We'll find something to do with it. Have you opened it? It's awesome. Okay. And not only that, but when you get to the airport, they sell Parmesan cheese at the airport, but at three times the price. Yep. So, so you'd go back, obviously. Yeah, we'll go back in a heartbeat. There you go. I'm Michael Pincus from michaelpincuswinereview.com, here with the wonderful Andre Pru from andrewinereview.ca. And, uh, yeah, I hope I hope we get a chance to go to French Accord. Uh, I, think, I think there's a lot of wines that you need to taste there, Michael. You want to do the spiel about what, what people should be doing now? People should subscribe to this podcast. Uh, they should leave reviews. Uh, make sure you keep an eye on underwinereview.ca. I will be profiling many of the wineries that I visited. Uh, I know I only talked about three, but uh, there were f- six stops that I made, and there was something to say about each of them. So uh, keep an eye on that. And as always, good night! Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.